when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello, listeners. Before we start today's episode of Payne's Politics, a quick message. We at the FT want to know what you'd like to hear more of on this show. So to help us understand, we're running a survey that you can find online at ft.com slash politics survey. There's also a link in our show notes. The survey takes around 10 minutes to complete, and if you fill it out, you'll have the chance to win a pair of Bose Quiet Comfort earbuds, so don't miss out. Now, on with the show. Rishi Sunak promised a government of integrity, professionalism, and accountability at every level. But his Tory chairman, Nadim Sahawi, is still there. Does the Prime Minister agree? that any politician who seeks to avoid the taxes they owe in this country is not fit to be in charge of taxpayer money. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, George Parker, in the hot seat vacated by Seb Payne just for the next few weeks before the pod is relaunched with a great new format. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at the Nadim Zahawi tax scandal and what it tells us about standards at the top of government, and how Rishi Sunak's mission to clean up British politics is going. I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Pickard, our deputy political editor, and Jasmine Cameron-Shleshi, the FT's political correspondent, to discuss the week's dramatic developments. And then we'll be going behind closed doors at Chequers. Well, we'll imagine being behind the closed doors at the PM's country retreat, where Mr Sunak and his cabinet have been mapping out what his election strategists call a narrow path to a Tory election victory. Can they stay on the path or fall to the rocks below? Robert Shrimsley and Stephen Bush, our ace columnists, will discuss the prospects. So Rishi Sunak has been accused of being too weak to immediately sack Nadim Zahawi, the Conservative Party chairman, over his five million settlements with the taxman. The Prime Minister, though, says he's just following proper procedure. The opposition can't have it both ways. The shadow leader, his, also his party chair, both urged me and the government to appoint an independent advisor. And now he objects to that independent advisor doing their job. It's simple political opportunism and everyone can see through it. Well, Jim Pickard, what do we already know about the Zahawi case? So what we do know now, which we haven't known for sure for a very long time because he's stonewalled us for basically half a year, is that there was a big settlement with HMRC worth about £5 million, of which we think £3.7 million was unpaid taxes. We think about a million pounds or £1.1 million was a penalty, and the rest is in interest. And that is quite a lot of money to be coughing up to HMRC. And what we think this involves is that when in the year 2000, Zahawi set up the successful polling firm YouGov with a guy called Stephen Shakespeare, they both were friends of Geoffrey Archer, the disgraced former London mayoral candidate for the Tory party, they said 
ended up, and Stefan Shakespeare took about 42.5%, and another 42.5% didn't go to Nadim Zahawi. He took nothing. Mm. And out of the goodness of his heart, he gave it to his father, who mm. lives abroad. And that has been held in an offshore entity called Balshaw. And Nadim Zahawi has always insisted this was kind of nothing to do with him. He's just a generous guy who gives massive stake, which ended up being worth £27 million, to his dad. He did give very useful advice on the setting up of the company, apparently. Yeah, and people at YouGov don't really remember having seen him around. But apart from that, um, mm. I'm sure it's all very legit. But the HMRC takes a different view, which is it probably wasn't that legit, which is why he's ended up paying what we think is this five million quid. Do you think Mr. Zahawi has lived up to the Sunak doctrine of transparency at every level? So I'm starting to think that this phrase of Rishi Sunak's is a bit like the great John Major phrase, Back to Basics. And Major's Back to Basics was kind of vague, but it became this thing on which you hung every moral, ethical, financial failing of the major government. And this one's much more specific. We're going to have integrity, professionalism, accountability. And I think the thing that sticks in the craw with the Sahawi case is, you know, to have someone who was chancellor at the time and not only denied it, called it a smear, he also issued legal threats, not only against journalists who tried to reveal that something was going on in terms of negotiation with HMRC, but also a tax expert called Dan Needle, who was very persistent on this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Jasmine, how do you think Rishi Sunak handled questions in the House of Commons this week? I mean, it was quite a bruising Prime Minister's questions because Rishi's been put in a tricky position. He's had to come to the dispatch box and essentially say to MPs, well, what I told you last week wasn't exactly right. New information has come to light. And at the point where Sahari is refusing to resign, Rishi just has to stand there and defend him. And I actually thought some of Starmer's attacks were quite effective and that he aligned Rishi's inability to sack Zahawi and the fact that this question over what taxes were paid and what happened, and he hasn't got to the bottom of that. And he aligned that with what's happening in the NHS and what's happening in the prosecution service and trying to paint a picture of a government that is entirely out of control. And so you can tell Rishi was trying to appear robust. He was arguing that, yes, it would be more politically convenient to get rid of him, but I'm trying to take a more straightforward approach. I'm having an investigation. We're going to do this properly. But you could just see him squirming. And I think that would have really made a lot of Tory MPs question, probably made Rishi reflect as well, because it's not just Zahawi, it's Dominic Raab. There are all these things in the background. And you do think, actually, is this individual credible? Is this individual able to withstand some of these scandals that are coming out of the woodwork? Well, it was obviously very uncomfortable for Rishi Sunak because it allowed Keir Starmer to open up questions about his own family's financial affairs and his wife's status as a non-dom. The fascinating thing about Rishi Sunak's wife is that she agreed to start paying certain taxes in the UK, but she is still a non-dom, which means that should her and Rishi get run over by a bus tomorrow, the kids still wouldn't pay whatever it is, £200 million of capital gains tax. So, Jasmine, do you think that uh, the Prime Minister was right to refer this to his new independent advisor, Sir Laurie Magnus, who was appointed after many months of delays? You can understand the logic of doing this because you did have a period over the summer, over the um, final months of the Boris Johnson administration and the Liz Truss era where we didn't have an independent ethics advisor. And it added to that sense of chaos and it added to the sense that this was a government that was really going from crisis to crisis. And so... Rishi's argument is that if this is a government of integrity and professionalism, then we do have to have due process. We do have to have these matters looked into. But it does feel a little bit like kicking the can down the road. You can't have a party chairman who can't go on the broadcast round and, and answer questions without being asked about his own tax affairs. And it just feels like there will be a point where Nadine Zahawi has to step down. But, 
you know, it just delays it further. Hmm. Can I just say, I think there's something deliciously British establishment about the fact that when you turn for an ethics advisor, you turn to an investment banker. <laughs> I have lots of beloved friends who are investment bankers. I wouldn't consider any of them models of moral privacy. I well. think you went to Eton though, Jim, which I think is probably a key consideration. But I always wonder, Jim, whether you think there's already enough out there for Rishi Sunak to sack Nadim Zahawi. Yeah, I think if he wanted to get rid of him, then of course he can if he's embarrassed by having a senior minister who's coughed up five million to HMRC over unpaid taxes during a cost of living crisis. He can do it. And I think you know, he's this very popular guy with Tory MPs, but for Labour, it's just an open goal which will run and run and run because they can just keep pointing at this guy and say, you know, five million pounds may not be a lot to you, may not be a lot to the prime minister, but it's equivalent to a 5,000 pound pay rise for a thousand nurses, believe it or not. Yeah. And also, one of the things that the party chairman has to do is send emails out to party members soliciting money for the party, which probably doesn't look quite so good when the uh, potential donees uh, look at his own financial affairs. Um, and Jasmine, this isn't the only investigation underway into Rishi Sunak's top team, is it? No, so you have the ongoing investigation um, into Dominic Raab, looking at his conduct towards civil servants. You also have the investigation into Gavin Williamson. Obviously, he resigned, but that's still ongoing. And then you also have a couple of investigations that, you know, while they don't relate to individuals inside Rishi's cabinet, they're also still relevant. So if you look at Boris Johnson, we've got the Privileges Committee. We also know that BBC chair Richard Sharp is going to be investigated. And it does add to that air of sleaze that Labour are very keen to press. And I think part of the issue is, is that when Rishi came into power, he wasn't able to bring any um, young, charismatic, rising stars with him. He had to look back to the party and find these individuals who have ministerial experience but have a lot of baggage. And what is quite striking when we look at the allegations against Raab or even Zahawi, it relates to actions before they were even appointed by Rishi Sunak. And so essentially, it's almost got nothing to do with Rishi, but ultimately, Rishi is the prime minister, he appointed them, and so he is being dragged down by their scandals. And he will have, of course, known some of the, the backstory of this. And let me just take another minister you didn't mention, who's Suella Braverman, who he appointed as Home Secretary just a short time after she was forced to resign for leaking mm. secret cabinet papers to Tory MPs. So it's true that a lot of this is a backwash from the Johnson regime, but you know these are these were ministerial appointments made by Rishi Sunak. Yeah, and if I can just talk for a second about the Raab allegations, and of course he disputes the veracity of some of these, but you know we're talking about civil servants who, in one case, someone talked about being physically sick in the morning before going to work for this guy. There's someone else who felt suicidal. You know, these are serious, serious allegations. They're serious allegations, which Dominic Raab, of course, denies. I just wonder, Jim, whether you think there's also a bit of a pattern emerging here of Rishi Sunak sort of procrastinating on tough decisions as. Jasmine's just been describing there, before inevitably bowing to what was obviously going to happen in the first place. I'm thinking back to mm. the way last year when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, the way he consistently refused to contemplate a windfall tax, which was a Labour Party policy, when it was blatantly obvious to all of us that eventually he was going to have to do it, and of course he did, or the row about Marcus Rashford and free school meals. Mm. You could see that in the end they were going to have to give in on that, and yet they incurred weeks of bad publicity. Do you think there's a bit of a pattern emerging? Well, what the Labour Party is repeatedly saying is, is the phrase weak. So Keir Starmer is trying to make the world think that we have a weak prime minister. And, and the evidence for that is things like the rebellions before Christmas over planning, over renewable energy, and he just killed over almost straight away. It's almost as if he, he wants kind of a quiet life. But the problem with being prime minister is you, you can't just 
given to every pressure group, for example, of backbench MPs. And I think at some point he's going to have to define himself a little bit more and, and show vision for what he stands for. There was a great Robert Shrimsley column earlier this week where he used a phrase about, you know, brutish political instincts and how Rishi may be lacking them a little bit compared to his predecessor because whatever you think of Boris Johnson, he did have an awful lot of political nous. Yeah, and Alistair Campbell, of course, a former press secretary to Tony Blair, would always say that if a story was going to dominate the news cycle for days and days and days, just anticipate it and deal with it. And the problem with the Nadim Sahawi case, of course, is that this could drag on for weeks, depending on how quickly Sir Laurie Magnus, the new ethics advisor, does his work. And you can feel the support for Nadim Sahawi sort of draining away from some of the briefings we've had this week about, you know, the fact that they were blindsided by some of the revelations. So, Jasmine Kamrasheshi, I just want to finish off by asking what is apparently a bit of a trivial question here, which is something that Keir Starmer said at Prime Minister's Questions. This is a clip of it. Is he starting to wonder if this job is just too big for him? Now, the question I've got to ask you, and I just took that at face value, but a lot of people in the press gallery came out and said, oh, this was a jibe at the physical stature of the Prime Minister. What do you think? Yes, and I thought it was quite a cheeky remark, but I think it did touch upon the fact that what the Labour Party are trying to emphasise is that you have a tired administration. Yes, you have new leadership at the top, but you have figures who have been in government, have run out of ideas, have run out of steam, aren't able to grapple with the severity of the problems that the country's facing. And so I think it was quite clever. You can see on the Tory backbenches that, you know, look like the colour drained out of their face. And, and, Rishi didn't really have an adequate response to that. And I think that will be a question that Tory MPs are asking themselves and the public will eventually have to ask themselves as we get closer to election day. I, I think Rishi Sunak hasn't been too bad at Prime Minister's Question Time. I think he's mastered the format quite well. I think the problem for him is the substance that he's trying to defend. But Jim, on that trivial point, do you think Keir Starmer was being sizes towards the Prime Minister? Yeah, I'm trying to work out what Rishi should have said. What, what about, I may be small, but I have big bucks. <laughs> I don't think that would have worked. Jim Picard, Jasmine Cameron Chiasi, thank you very much. Rishi Sunak's cabinet had an away day where they got to pick the brains of a conservative political strategist known for winning difficult campaigns, notably for Australia's Liberal Party under Scott Morrison and Boris Johnson's Tory win, both in 2019. The political strategist in question is called Isaac Levido, and here's how he explained those wins for Johnson and Morrison in an interview with a Canadian Conservative advocacy group in 2020. I think anyone who's sort of practised politics and campaigns, if you've got a good candidate who does and says the right things and has good instincts, it makes a sort of someone who has a job like mine a lot easier. I'm joined by Robert Strimsley and Stephen Bush, our senior columnists. Robert, Isaac Levito was talking to the Cabinet about a narrow path to victory. Can you just describe to the listeners what the narrow path is? Yes. I mean, the premise of this is that it's been an absolutely chaotic parliament, Liz Truss, Boris Johnson, but that voters understand this government has been unlucky in two ways, in being whacked with two huge existential crises, the pandemic and the Ukraine conflict. They understand it would tax any government. So that's the grounding point for the Conservatives. Then you say, look, but for all these crises, the last couple of years, we've really governed quite well. Things are getting back together again. The economy is just beginning to get itself going. And, you know, don't let this left-wing Labour Party come in and ruin it. You've seen Rishi, you know, he, he governs competently. Isn't that what you want right now? And then you start winding them up about all the things about Keir Starmer that they instinctively aren't comfortable with. And the truth is, all the polling shows that the public hasn't got a positive fix on Keir Starmer in the way that they did have, say, 
with Tony Blair. They're not frightened of him, which is a big deal, but they haven't got a, a big appetite for him. So that's the narrow path. But when even the party strategist is saying it's a narrow path, you have a sense of just how narrow it is. It requires everything to go right, and it still might not work, but that's the path. How narrow is it? Very narrow. In my opinion, almost impossibly narrow. By the way, it's worth noting, although Isaac Levito has indeed notched up some very great successes, his last big election, I think, was the Australian election, where Scott Morrison was beaten by the Labour Party and by quite an uncharismatic leader of the Labour Party, though, of course, the parallels are limited because of a different electoral system. I... I'm coming increasingly to the view that the game is up for the Conservatives, that although the public isn't in love with Keir Starmer, they might start looking at Labour Party more critically. You know, if the economy picks up and Rishi Sunak shows competent leadership, the public might change its mind on him. He's only five percentage points behind Keir Starmer in the polls on who'd make the best Prime Minister, as opposed to 20-something on the Labour v Tory ones. But my instinct just tells me that the game's up for the Tories, that the public's had enough and it's going to keep being difficult for things like the Zahawi issue are always going to keep bubbling up and that they can do their best, but they're now, in my opinion, damage limitation rather than a victory. Now, Stephen Bush, do you think Tory MPs can stick to this narrow path or do you think they'll find the lure of a death plunge too hard to resist? You know, if we were talking about sides in a board game, you'd go, actually, I can see how the Tory side could win. But precisely the reason why the narrow path feels so implausible to me is I just feel like Tory MPs are going to self-sabotage. You can see them self-sabotaging this week, right, with the various rows about tax rises. Obviously, he should have sacked Nadim Zahawi. But one of the reasons why he hasn't yet is that he feels he needs to manage internal opinion in his own parliamentary party. Labour's strategic instinct is to bring Rishi Sunak's numbers down to the Conservative Party's level. And one of Labour's advantages, they all know that. They all recognise Rishi Sunak is the Conservatives' best asset. Every week, Conservative MPs do this kind of Oh, but actually, has Rishi really turned things around? So, well, yeah, you you were polling in the mid-teens. Now you're polling in the mid-twenties. He obviously has done quite a lot for the party. I still don't think they're going to switch to Boris Johnson, but they will just do things that make his life difficult. They will make it harder for him to get back onto the sort of centre of British politics where they need to be to win the election. It'll force them to, you know, talk on and on about small boats and other promises that they obviously can't keep. And so I just... Yeah, I just think it's a death plan. And Stephen, part of this narrow path involves tax cuts in the budget of 2024. So money ends up in people's pay packets in April, a few months before the next election. But as you just alluded to there, there are a whole load of Tory MPs who think that's leaving it far too late. I mean, that tax row is looking very, very difficult for Rishi Sunak to manage, isn't it? So I actually think that those Conservative MPs are right. In then I think having tax cuts close to an election, all of the sort of political science literature indicates that basically voters go, I'm not an idiot. I know this is a pre-election bribe. I know you're probably going to unwind it. And seeing as it seems unlikely that the public services will be in a better state, it means going into that election going, oh, those very scary implied cuts in Jeremy Hunt's budget, yes, we really are serious about them. You're ultimately, like, if you want to have tax cuts, you have to have spending cuts. And it is pretty clear that the British voters do not want any more of those. So yeah, I wouldn't disagree with anything Robert said, but I would add that it would include them going, yes, we hear you on this, we've raised taxes, our spending is fixing the problems in the public realm, Labour will tax you even more because they've never seen a tax rise they don't like. But instead, they look set to go into a situation where he'll be going, oh, I would love to have cut taxes more, but I haven't. And by the way, here are these big, scary numbers about what a Tory victory means for the public realm. Yeah. Another famous Australian political strategist, Lyndon Crosby, talked about knocking the barnacles off the boat. Are you quite surprised that Rishi Sunak hasn't been a bit more ruthless in knocking the barnacles off the boat? I'm thinking here particularly of Nadim Zahawi and his tax affairs. Ah. <laughs> uh. 
I mean, I think Nadim Zahawi is going to go. By the time people are listening to this, he may even have gone. But I get that Rishi Sunak felt the need to offer the sort of appearance of due process, of agreeing to an ethics inquiry before sacking him. Nadim Zahawi is quite popular, although he didn't do anything to support Rishi Sunak. So there's no particular loyalty. I think a more ruthless leader might have sacked him straight away. But politicians put on these Westminster goggles where they start seeing things from, I can't give a scalp to the media, rather than the whole country's looking at this and it looks ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I don't think Rishi Sunak has shown himself to have those sort of brute political skills that the most effective politicians have. The absolute instinct of where the juggler is and when to go for it. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson had many flaws, but he had brute political skills. And you watch Rishi Sunak and just think, I'm not sure you've got them. And the problem is, it leaves him looking too often like a bit of a victim of circumstance, like he's unlucky. The Labour Party is calling him weak all the time. It's their main attack line. Mm. And it's quite unfair in some respects. He's shown himself quite courageous at times. But as an attack line, for the reason Stephen outlined, it's important. And he's playing into their caricature rather than against it. Yeah. Now, Stephen, is there anything in the polls that you've seen that should give Rishi Sunak some hope? Yeah. So I think the things which should give him hope, broadly speaking, there is not a lot of enthusiasm for the Labour Party. There is essentially no fear. And, you know, we all know, not just for the Labour Party, but the Liberal Democrats, who, of course, can do real damage to the Conservatives in parts of the country. Fear of the Labour leader has been a huge factor in recent elections. But that absence of enthusiasm means then you kind of feel like, oh, well, if the economy improves and public services look like they're getting better, the Labour lead probably would come down quite a lot. And the other thing is, of course, then. Although Keir Starmer has been hugely influential in there not being fear of the Labour Party, he has had to do a lot of things which I think have contributed to the image of him as quite shifty, which we see coming through pretty clearly in the polls as well. So I think those two things, the lack of enthusiasm for the Labour Party, some kind of doubts about Keir Starmer personally, are the things I would take heart from were I Rishi Sunak. Mm. One of the interesting things is the way that the Labour leaders look quite solid, hasn't it, since Rishi Sunak took over, sort of over 20% in some opinion polls. Robert, you wrote about careless conservatism in your column this week. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, partly it was just a play on the fact that Nadim Zahawi used the phrase, HMRC did too, that phrase carelessness to describe his failure to pay several million in tax. But there's been a carelessness around the Conservative Party for a long time, certainly through the whole Boris Johnson. They're careless about appointments, careless about the rules in terms of propriety, wallpaper in his flat, that kind of thing. Careless about the impacts of Brexit. Liz Truss was careless about the impacts of her budget. Some of the problems that Rishi Sunak is running up against are the toxic effluent of the tides that are coming in from before. It's just all coming in on his watch. There's that famous old political phrase, which I love quoting, an insult that Disraeli used on one of Gladstone's liberal government. He looked at them across the commons one day and said, look, behold a range of exhausted volcanoes. And I buy that argument. You look at them, you just think, you're exhausted. You've been here a long time. You've run out of ideas a bit. You're not quite sure why you're there. And I think the country can see that there is a government that deserves to be in opposition. And the only issue it takes you back to the narrow path is they haven't yet decided there's an opposition that deserves to be in government. So, Stephen, the Spectator front cover this week is all about the word sleaze that Robert and I remember very well from the 1990s. Do you think that there's a danger that a word, which only seems to apply in Westminster politics, is actually going to come back and bite the Conservatives again? Yeah. One of the central advantages a government has is they are the government. They therefore seem more serious. And even small things like Rishi Sunak forgetting to do his seatbelt, which doesn't matter, right? 
And in, I think, loads of circumstances, you can see a prime minister who, in better political weather, are being able to carry it off. But because everything is going wrong, it just adds to this sort of general smell of, oh, these people are a bunch of jokers. Mm. Prime minister can't do his seatbelt. Party chair can't pay his taxes properly. Nothing works. Can't get an ambulance. Police don't catch any criminals. It just adds to that kind of general sense of these people are a bit of a joke. I remember during the 2015 election, someone who worked for Ed Miliband saying, and what was really worrying them is they said, look, on Mock the Week, Ed is crap has become the kind of like accepted joke. And they said, and the fact that it's entered the sort of bloodstream of something everyone accepts, they said, that really freaks me out. That makes me think the polls are wrong. And I think that was true then. And I think the fact that the Tories are sleazy and a bit rubbish, it's become like almost like the Muzak of British politics. So on that point, one of my moments of the week, which I think been referred to already, was Keir Starmer's The Job's Too Big For Him dig at Rishi Sunak. And one of the reasons I love that so much as a sort of piece of pure political uh, theatre was, A, you can see the measure of the attack, how it works. And secondly, it's quite a snide dig about his size. And the point is, when political attacks really work, is when the public can look at someone and see the attack line manifested. So you look at Rishi Sunak, the job's too big for him. He's small, he's slight, and the attack seems to hit home. And I thought that was fascinating because you can see how that digs in. It was also interesting to see Keir Starmer bearing his teeth in such a way. Well, unusual, isn't it, Steve? You also made points about Rishi Sunak's wife's tax affairs. It was an incredibly personal attack on the Prime Minister, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I think, one, it reflects their strategic imperative that they have to go personal because he is their biggest concern, right? He is the biggest barrier to a Labour government. But I think one of the things which is a bit odd about Keir is he's so used to being in well-run organisations, and obviously the Labour Party generally isn't, then when he doesn't feel confident in his material, his staff, he kind of becomes that sort of weird, mm. I am a robot, please elect me. And now that he feels he has a shadow cabinet around him that he likes, you know, aides who he thinks are good, you can see him coming to life a bit. What I think is interesting also about how that row has been discussed, including earlier on this podcast, is that Keir Starmer is not that much taller than <laughs> Rishi Sunak. But I think the fact that everyone went, oh yeah, great, great joke, rather than, oh yeah... Mm, yeah, but you're houses. taller than everyone. Everyone looks short. But I, yeah, <laughs> but I think it, show, it shows kind of the way that the mood music around the Labour leader is changing. That people, instead of going, uh, mate, you're pretty tiny too, they went, oh yeah, great, great line. Yeah, mm. the force is with him, right? Stephen and Robert, thank you for joining us. And that's it for this episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And we also appreciate positive reviews and ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder and Manuela Saragossa. The sound engineer is Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.